Welcome to Ottawa Valley Vineyard, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share His love. Last week we looked at the, um, oh, what is it called? The Great Commission. So we looked at that last week. And so we kind of just have a couple of weeks in here. This is kind of, you know, the, the period after you finish a series, there's... Um, yeah, there's just some time before we launch into our next series of kind of like, okay, well, what, how do we want to organize this? How do we want to use this? And so this felt like, okay, this is the perfect opportunity to revisit Ecclesiastes. Um, so what we're going to do is uh, I'm just going to summarize a little bit because we talked about the first section of Ecclesiastes. We did that maybe three months ago, something like that. So we're going to kind of summarize a little bit of what we talked about last time, and then we're just going to jump into this next section and uh, just continue kind of working through the book and exploring it. It's uh, maybe a little bit of a palate cleanser. <laughs> we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, so last time, uh, last time that we spoke on Ecclesiastes, we really looked at the introduction. So if, if you're just catching this for the first time and you weren't here for the last time, the last time was just, we covered the first 11 verses. So the opening poem, it was kind of in, yeah, chapter one, verses one through 11. And what that really did is it really set the tone for the book, right? It gave us a picture of a world endlessly busy, but hopelessly inconclusive. You know, there's so much busyness, but there was ultimately no gain from the author's perspective. You know, he said everything is merest breath, everything is havel, everything is here today and then gone tomorrow like vapor, it just disappears. And, and then what we did is we left that particular talk on the note of scripture is telling a story of a God working something permanent in history, working something the opposite of Havel. Into this place of merest breath, Jesus is calling us towards something lasting. So today what we'll do is we'll tackle the next section in this book, and we'll kind of continue our journey through Ecclesiastes, and, and we're going to find out if I've bitten off more than I can chew or not. Because <laughs> essentially what we're doing today is we're tackling a chapter and a half that's what we're going to be munching on. So we'll see if we can chew it. Because it's such a long section, instead of verse by verse, um, we're not going to be able to do that um, because you, we're not going to be here for four hours. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to highlight certain verses and, and really try to communicate, okay, this is a co coherent storyline that traces through this chapter and a half and, and kind of weave together. We're obviously going to hit some verses, but try to weave them together into, okay, what's a coherent storyline? What's actually happening? And so I'm just letting you know up front, Ecclesiastes is a difficult book just right off the top. And I'm just letting you know that there's going to be verses that we read that I'm not going to be able to touch on. But plug for the question and answer time, that's what the question and answer time is for at the end of things. So uh, if things come up and you're unsure or, uh, you know, things spark thoughts, please, yeah, please note them. You can even write them in the chat as you think of them. We won't address them probably during the sermon because if I get off track, I start to go all over the place. But we'll, yeah, we'll have a question and answer time at the end. So feel free to do that. But yeah, I'm just letting you know up front, there are verses that we're not going to be able to dive into or really mention more than in passing. And maybe uh, one of the last things I want to highlight before we dive into the, the scripture here uh, is I think that this book really is best read as a journey. I mean, there's going to be sections in Ecclesiastes and verses that if you just take those and you're like, oh, here, I'm going to put this on my pillow, 
or I'm going to embroider this and give this to somebody. You're not going to want to do that. I think Ecclesiastes is best read as a journey, right? The author is asking these questions. He's struggling through these things, and he'll eventually reach some conclusions. There'll be some light that shines through, but it's in the writing of the book that we're invited into that same journey, right? So, we're invited into the questions. We're invited uh, into the frustration. We're invited into the uncertainty, and we're kind of invited to track with him through this. We're kind of joining him in the journey that he's experiencing. And I think one of my favorite things, and what I love about this book, is it is it's not scared to go to the hard places, and it's not scared to go to the dark places. Um, it, it's content to wade through those things without fear. You know, looking for what is real, what is good, when everything seems dark, when everything seems uncertain, what is there that we can actually hold on to? Where does the light shine through the veil? Where can we find something to cling to? And maybe just a quick note, I think that that's what we want our faith to be, right? We want our faith or our trust um, to be something real, to be something that interacts with the darkness around us, something that is that recognizes the hardship of life. You know, we don't want just um, just verses printed on pillowcases that we can kind of copy-paste and apply wherever we want. You know, we want our faith to be something real, something that actually interacts with life. And I think that Ecclesiastes helps us to do this and will help us to do this. Okay, so uh, yeah, let's dive in. Um, what we're going to see here is we're going to start to see the focus sharpening and, and narrowing down, right? So that opening poem um, that we talked about last time, it was covering this broad sweep of the human experience. And so now the author is going to focus in on some more specific pieces of our experience. So we're moving from analogies and, and large kind of poetic broad strokes. We're going to move to, okay, what can we know directly through our experience of the world. So in this section, what's going to happen is we're going to touch on a couple different things. We're going to examine the worthiness of them, right? We're going to ask whether there's anything under the sun that has any lasting value. Is there any gain? Is there any satisfaction? And, and that's really probably the dominant theme for this section. It, he's, you know, it's this search for satisfaction. It's this search for gain that kind of continues throughout the book and is exemplified here. The author is looking to find lasting satisfaction, looking to find fulfillment, looking to find gain. How do we do that? Um, where do we find that? Can we find it? Um, can we find what is worth doing? And this is a, I think this is a relevant and an urgent search. I mean, this book was written thousands of years ago, but uh, this maps on to my own experience. It, it, it speaks to me. It captures my uh, modern experience. I, I think it captures ours as a, as a community as well. You know, we want to be satisfied. We want to live the good life. We want to be doing things that we know matter. And we want to be living the good life. And that's what the author is looking for. And so I guess the question is, what does he find? Okay, so here we go. Uh, beginning in verse 12, I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be be counted. So we start off, this section really is kind of a summary, right? And so he's going to elaborate on how he got here, but he warns us almost of the outcome first before he even gets into his method, before he gets into 
how he got to those conclusions, he's kind of summing up his findings and he's giving us the conclusions almost right up front. Um, with our guide's sometimes devastating candor, um, he's quick to tell us the worst and he moves almost directly to his conclusion. The search largely has come to nothing. Right, and so he sees the restlessness of life that we experience. And I think that you're right to read into this some level of frustration, into this statement. Um, yeah, some level of frustration, some, some level of angst. I mean, there is an experiential reality to life that is just hard, and I don't think that we can ignore that, right? We have to, rec- we have to realize, um, yeah, if our faith is going to have depth like we were talking about, we have to recognize the hard parts of it. We have to recognize the pain. If we're going to point people towards Jesus, we want that to be more than a cookie-cutter thing that we apply to people. We want that to really meet people where they are. We want that to meet people in the middle of darkness. It's not worth pretending that that doesn't exist. There is striving. There is pain. There is wasted effort. There are failed relationships. Brokenness is real. And, and what he's talking about here is, is there seems to be nothing that he's able to find, at least right now, ultimately meaningful that he can engage in, right? There is no gain, and he's getting frustrated by it. And so he, he's going to explain how he got to this place of frustration. But he even goes a little bit further, and he traces this restlessness. He tracks this lack of gain to the will of God. He says, and he says this, he says, it is an unhappy business and pay attention to this, this is important, that God has given to the sons of men. And if this wasn't in the Bible, I would feel really unsure about going this far. I would put it a lot softer than that. But, but what he's saying is that there is frustration and discontentment in the world. We can't argue with that. That does exist. And in some sense, God has made the world this way, right? We live in a world a mixed world. We don't live in torture world where everything is like, you know, the height of badness. And we don't live in perfect world where there's no such thing as suffering and pain. We live in a mixed world. It's a mixture of good and bad. And God has created it this way for some kind of reason. This is the world that we're given. That's one where evil and good grow together. It's one where we long for satisfaction and we often find frustration. It's a world where we try to achieve gain of an eternal sort, but it's often not there for the grabbing. And so from his contemplation that this is an unhappy business, he moves to a major reason for this unhappiness, right? And so he kind of summarizes it. There was a poem right at the end of this. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. And right at the end here, we're faced with our limitations as human beings. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. We are limited and imperfect people um, in many ways, right? And this could be character. This could be just circumstances that we lack control over. The reality is that we are a limited people. Okay, and so he opens with these thoughts, right? The life that God has given us is hard, and there's very little that we can do about it. So from this summary and the beginning observation, he now moves into what we could call a sampling of life. So he's given us largely his conclusion. And so now he's gonna tell us how he got there. What is it? (laughs) Uh, You seem in in a pretty bad place, sir. Um, He's gonna tell us, this is how I got here. Verse 16. I said to myself, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has had 
great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So he's looking for gain, right? Where is their gain? What is their worth doing? And so he begins the search with wisdom. He moves from using wisdom as this tool that he's used so far to begin to consider wisdom as an end in itself. If there's gain, if there's something worth doing, surely it's to be found here. Surely it's in the accumulation of wisdom and understanding and learning, right? This is a quality that's probably extremely praised among his contemporaries and in his circle. And so he says, I'm going to dive into that. But his experience here tells a very different story than maybe what we would have expected. What is his conclusion? Is there gain? His conclusion is, wisdom is great as far as it goes, but rather than bring gain out of life, an increase in wisdom seems to actually just highlight the lack of gain. The more wisdom, the more understanding that you have, it seems to just increase vexation. Um, Wisdom itself has limits. It doesn't ultimately bring gain out of life. So while wisdom is a good and a useful tool, and he's going to continue using it throughout the book, and he's used it up to this point, um, it brings with it sorrow and frustration. Um, In some ways, the more wisdom you gather, the more clearly you can see the futility of trying to get gain out of life. So is the way to get gain satisfaction, is that wisdom? You know, to grow in knowledge, to grow in wisdom, to grow in degrees, to grow in understanding, to just learn more. Is the answer education? Um, Is this the answer to satisfaction in life? More knowledge, more education, more understanding, and coalesce answer. The author's answer is no. Wisdom is great as a tool, but even wisdom is limited. So wisdom has failed. And realizing the failing of wisdom he now moves and he's like, okay, I guess I have to look into something else. We'll have to move somewhere else. And so he begins to consider pleasure. If wisdom's not going to do it, maybe, maybe the good life, maybe gain, satisfaction, maybe that's to be found in pleasure, you know, in enjoyment of life. And pleasure there doesn't mean like sinful. Pleasure there means um, like happiness, like happiness of heart. You know, maybe what I should do is I should get as much enjoyment out of life as possible, get as much pleasure out of life as I can. I should take all the holidays, I'll visit all the restaurants, I'll buy all the toys, um, I'll do all the things that make me feel good. This is what he says, I said to myself, come now, I will make a test of pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my mind how to cheer my body with wine. My mind still guiding me with wisdom. And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven during the few days of their life. And so as he continues to search for gain, he plunges into everything that is enjoyable. And even while he does this, his mind is guiding him with wisdom. And all of this, he's looking for what is good for people to do? Where is the good life? What is worth doing? What is the best way to live? And he seems to hit on this paradox of, of hedonism, right? The pursuit of pleasure. It seems like the more that you look for pleasure, the less of that pleasure that you actually find. 
and he's looking for something in pleasure and, and beyond it, and he's looking for something through pleasure. And, and maybe this is a deliberate flight from that cold rationality, cold wisdom, cold understanding, you know, trying to get at some secret of life that maybe rationality, maybe wisdom, maybe understanding was blocking him from finding some kind of gain. And so he embraces pleasure in full, looking through pleasure for this thing worth living for, looking for gain, looking for ultimate satisfaction. And so the question is, well, what did you find? Like, is there gain to be found in the pursuit of joy and pleasure? Is there satisfaction here? Is there anything lasting? Is this where we find it? And I mean, we just read it, right? His conclusion is, no. There is no ultimate gain in these things. Laughter is mad. And pleasure has no ultimate use outside of itself. Not that these things are intrinsically bad, but they have no substance to them. They fade away. They are merest breath. They leave you with nothing. They're not worth living for. Don't give yourself to them. Don't let yourself be consumed by this pursuit of pleasure. This is just another dead end. This is not the way to life. This is a dead end. Don't do it. And so um, we rejoin our hero as he's looking for gain. He's looking for satisfaction. How are we supposed to spend our lives, right? He tried wisdom as an end in itself and he found it empty. He tried throwing himself into the pursuit of his own happiness and he found it to be madness and useless. And so he records another place that he looks here. Well, maybe, maybe it's work. Maybe it's accomplishment. Maybe I can find gain here. I have to be able to find gain somewhere. Maybe it's here. Maybe satisfaction, gain, the good life. Maybe that's to be found in work and accomplishment and, and feeling good about yourself for everything that you've been able to do. This is what he says. He says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, men's delight. And so I became great and surpassed all who were in Jerusalem before me. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had spent in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Wisdom has failed him. Pleasure has failed him. Maybe, maybe work is where he can find meaning and purpose and hope and gain and satisfaction. Maybe this is worthwhile. He sets out to transform his environment, facilitate his enjoyment of life through building and doing and accomplishing and making great things. He undertook great projects. He put superhuman effort into the things that he did. He created a paradise, a beautiful world populated by his people. He spared no expense, enormous wealth displayed by the unparalleled numbers of herds and flocks and treasure. He did this wholeheartedly. He did not hold back. He went uh, yeah, full bore into this. And, and when it's done, he sits back and he, he thinks, did this provide the satisfaction? Did this provide the gain 
that he's been looking for. And in verses 10 and 11, we, like we just read, we find his summary. Um, and he did find joy in the work of his hands, but did, was the experiment of success? His answer is no. This too ultimately failed. Was there lasting meaning, purpose, satisfaction, gain to be found in work and accomplishment? No, there wasn't. And no, there isn't. And in the end, what's produced, right? The, The achievements have been brilliant. On a material level, lots has been accomplished. But his report here is that he realized that it didn't mean anything. It was chasing after the wind. So maybe, I mean, we've got a little bit left to go in the chapter, but, uh, you know, where can we find satisfaction? Where can we find gain? Maybe just a quick summary. Well, it's not an accumulation of wisdom. That degree, being well-read, feeling smarter than everybody else. It's not there. Knowing more is not enough. It's not in the pursuit of joy, getting that car, those clothes, that holiday, and those things that you long for that will just, that you're like, ah, I want this. This will prove empty and hollow. It's not in our pursuit of accomplishments, in, in building, a bu- bu- building a business, um, the things that we accomplish, the completion of projects. Um, at the end, this too comes to nothing. Uh, so, where do we go from here? I mean, that's a pretty comprehensive list. Um, where else can we find gain? Where else can we find satisfaction? I mean, do we just give up on this? Do we just accept the absurdity of life? Is there no answer to this? So having hit a little bit of a dead end, he's actually going to circle back to considering wisdom again, right? He wants an answer. He's yearning for an answer. And so he circles back to wisdom again. You know, maybe he missed something the first time. So verse 12. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what he's already done. Then I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that one fate comes to all of them. Then I said to myself, what befalls the fool will befall me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said to myself that this also is vanity. For of the wise man, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten, how the wise man dies just like the fool. And I didn't change these for you, but that's, that's there. Um, and this rises out of his reflection, right, on the experiment of work and accomplishment. You know, after everything has been done, everything's been accomplished, If he's come back empty-handed, after all that effort, after all that money, after all those resources, what hope does anybody have? You know, he tackled this from a position of power and great wealth. Nothing was out of reach for him, and the project was still a failure. So he circles back to wisdom. He circles back to folly. The experiment maybe puts him in a better position to consider wisdom and folly again. Maybe he'll find something new. Maybe he'll find something else. Um... And his conclusion ends up largely the same as the first time. The wisdom is a useful instrument by which we can view reality, right? We can come to a clear understanding of the world. But by itself, it does not provide any gain. It is a tool, but does not provide the answer. So there's some, there's some goodness in wisdom, right? Wisdom is better than folly in the same way that light is better than darkness. However, 
death is the great equalizer. Death happens to both the foolish and the wise. So while wisdom is better than folly, there's still no ultimate gain. And I, th- I think you can feel something in his heart here, right? Where is, the, where is the gain? Where is the satisfaction? Why did God put this desire for eternity in me, this desire for something to last? If it can't be met, why, why do I have it? And this kind of spirals him, and the, these thoughts carry him to a, to a dark place. And I'll let him tell it. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I had toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether it will be a wise man or a fool, yet he'll be the master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and I gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a man who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave all to be enjoyed by a man who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and strain with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of pain and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his mind does not rest. This also is vanity. There's nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he gives the work of gathering and heaping only to give to the one who pleases God. This is also his vanity and striving after the wind. So the reality of death now weighs on the author, right? It overshadows his life. And just a, just a quick note. I mean, I know that this is dark. <laughs> I, I get that. Um, but I think it's, I think it's real. I think there's people watching this stream who felt this way, who do feel this way. And for that reason, I don't think we should run from it, right? This should be something that we wrestle with. Um, it's not going to be, not going to do anybody any good to just paste something happy on top of this. Um, the, the weight of death, uh, it overshadows his life, right? So much so that he says that he hate, hated life, right? It's bad enough that there's no gain from all the effort expended. Not only that, but any minimal gain that you do make, right? Any negligible gains that you do make, it could just be given to someone else who's neither wise or, or foolish. You know, it just falls in their lap. And from this perspective, I, I mean, you know, it, he's, he's hopeless, uh, there's, there's, he sees pointlessness, he sees hopelessness, he sees misfortune, restlessness, pain, grief. Um, those who seek gain and control over life are only ever chasing after the wind, grasping after what cannot be grasped. And death stands as the ultimate statement of mortal lack of control. We possess control in part for a brief time, but God, only God, holds control in any ultimate sense. And the refusal to acknowledge this, right, and the railing against that, that God is in control and that we're not, it only results in frustration. It only results in misery. It only results in a lack of fulfillment in daily work. And uh, maybe it results in a particularly clear perspective of how pointless it all is. 
and I know that this has been a happy, sunny sermon, um, but we're about to hit on something here. So I'm, I'm, just, I'm just stopping you just to, we're about to hit something here. It's in this moment of rock bottom that the author sees something. It's in the middle of the darkness that, that something shimmers. And this veil that has been in front of his eyes and led him to despair, it ripples a little bit. And we're going we're gonna to see that ripple, right? In this moment, the darkness wavers a little bit. And I'm not saying that this is an answer or that it's a complete answer, but there's something ripples. He sees something, a glimpse of something. He's sitting in the darkness, despairing of life. And he sees in the corner of his eye what we read in verses 24 to 26. There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment for his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. Remember that? And I'll just point this out. Remember at the very beginning, there was uh, the, the burden that was from the hand of God. This also is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he gives the work of gathering and heaping only to give to the one who pleases God. And the author has, has realized something, right? He's found something to, to hold on to, um, something to carry forward. And he's going to carry this forward in the rest of the book. And, and this is a theme that's going to grow. And, and I think I can only really comment on this theme because you see it grow in, in the rest of the book, but you catch a glimpse of it here. But there's something here for him to grab onto, right? The good life. This is what he's been looking for, the good life. Uh, consistent eating, at least, in eating and drinking and the ability of the mortal to show himself what is good in his toil or to find some kind of satisfaction in his work. So the good life, at least, involves seeing, and I'm going to add wisdom, wisdom, food, drink, work, as gifts from God, and then receiving them as gifts. Instead of pursuing them, instead of chasing after them, receiving them as gifts. Okay, so, so what, what does that mean? Um, what are we saying? Why, why are we highlighting this? Let's, let's break this down a little bit. The good life, it seems to have at its core an orientation of the human to God. And the rest of scripture is going to elaborate on this and is going to say particularly the human in right relationship to God. But, but what he's pointing at here is, is with God, the giver at the center, we kind of have, our lives are oriented around things, right? And um, there's, there's God, the giver, and then there's this striving self, or there's this false self that seeks to gain, that seeks to look, that seeks to take. And with, when God, the giver, is at the center of things, and the striving self is displaced, there's now the possibility of wisdom and joy. Um, the good life is to be found when we are in right relationship with God. And being in right relationship with God, we're able to accept these things as gifts from his hand. So the opposite of accepting these things from the hand of God is to hunt them down ourselves, right? Or is to, to pursue them ourselves. It's we're going to take these things for ourselves. And this whole passage has been about the futility of trying to hunt these things down on our own. The pursuit of wisdom for wisdom's sake fails. The pursuit of pleasure for pleasure's sake fails. The pursuit of accomplishments for the sake of our pride and feeling good about ourselves, it ultimately ends up hollow. And I think this is what's starting to shine through here, is true gain begins when we give up on trying to get gain. True satisfaction has a beginning point when we stop chasing satisfaction. True accomplishment 
starts when we stop seeking to accomplish things on our own power. True life begins with right orientation and with right relationship to God. And when this happens, we begin to receive these other things as a gift. And just a couple other comments here. The fuller dimensions of wisdom and madness and folly have also been made clear here, right? It's madness and it's folly to seek for profit from life. The consequence for those who seek profit from life, who just seek gain, who pursue these things, the consequence is misery. Um, wisdom, by contrast, it acknowledges God, not the self as the center of existence. And when we acknowledge God and when we embrace Um, creation as it is, when we embrace the limits of the creature in regards to the creator, once we embrace that relationship, it becomes possible to know joy. It becomes possible to receive these gifts. So I think that what he's discovering here is that the illusion that there is profit to be made is starting to to fade away, right? And, And creaturely limitations before the creator have been embraced. So the quest for what is good for human beings in terms of their happiness and their well-being, in terms of gain, in terms of satisfaction, I think it begins to find an answer here. And I, I want to be careful to say this is not the entire answer. Um, I think that you have to read the rest of, <laughs> of Scripture and how this fits in to look for a more full answer. But I think there's the beginning of answer here, right? There may be some kind of gain here. There is nothing better for a person than to eat, to drink, to find ways of enjoying life as we receive these gifts from God. There's nothing better than for someone to be in right relationship with God and to begin to receive these things as gifts. And and it seems like we're being presented with, when you read this whole thing, it seems like we're presented with two different tracks, okay? So there's, and, and this is hinging on the language of God has given. And so the one track over here is the unhappy business track, okay? So this is the unhappy business track that we've been exploring through most of this chapter. So the unhappy business track is looking for gain in pursuit of wisdom, or looking for gain in pursuit of joy, or looking for gain in pursuit of accomplishment. These are all things controlled by the striving self, the self that seeks to rage against the way that the world works and to to grab hold of it and to wring some kind of gain from it. So this is the unhappy business track. And then here on the other side, opposite to the unhappy business track, is uh, that God has given gifts to the sons of men. So in themselves and rightly used, the basic things of life are good. So food, drink, work, wisdom. What spoils these things and leads to the unhappiness is our hunger to get out of them more than they can give us. And maybe that's a symptom of the longing that lies in the heart of humanity, right? When we treat, in just a general principle, when we treat the tools and the gifts like ultimate things, they fail us and they turn bitter. But when God becomes the ultimate thing, these things become joy and light because they begin to work the way that they are supposed to. And I see Jake is preempting me in the chat. Good man. Um, so, I mean, what, is, what does this mean, right? I do want to, I mean, so if you've, if you've lasted up till now, you've sat through like a fair bit of exposition followed by some like, okay, now we're drawing. So, <laughs> I'm just recognizing that you have achieved something. So congratulations, well done. So let's make this practical, right? Let's put legs on this. What, is this. what does this actually mean? How does this change me tomorrow or today or this afternoon from who I was before? And, and I think it means at least a couple of things. I, I think I think it's saying 
there is no satisfaction in the pursuit of wisdom, in the pursuit of pleasure, in the pursuit of of accomplishment, right? So we are people, we're creatures who worship, right? We're people who choose an ultimate thing and we choose to live for that thing. And and we can't avoid that. We orient ourselves around things and then we pursue that. And I really think this section of scripture stands as a warning, as a warning and then possibly even a pleading, right? Saying, look, I've looked here. All of these things are empty. I've recorded my journey so that you can see this. Don't do this to yourself, These are all dead ends. I've searched them out and I've written them down and look where they led me. Learn from my journey so you don't have to reach the same dark place that I did. If you turn these things into the thing that consumes your time and your thought and consumes your love, they will burn you and you will find yourself in darkness and dissatisfaction. There is no answer in these things. These aren't the things you're looking for. So I I think there's at least that. And then I think there's a flip side to that as well that's being communicated here. And this is the, I mean, this will be the, well, I don't want to spoil Ecclesiastes for you, but (laughs) this will be a theme that grows, okay? I mean, if you haven't read it yet, I mean, I guess it's not not exactly new. Spoiler Spoiler alert, yeah, yeah. What does this mean? Uh, Secondly, I think it means instead of choosing these things, right? These things that are, They're obviously points of failure, dead ends. Choose life. I think it would encourage this. I think the writer of Ecclesiastes will encourage that. Even if he doesn't say it so explicitly here, he's going to say this. He's going to say, choose life. Make God central. All these other things fail. Hear him. Listen to him. Obey him. Love him. Be with him. Walk with him. Because that is the way of life. That is the that is the only way in which there is gain. That is the only way forward in which that, that eternity found in our hearts can actually be answered. This is the way of life. Um, and the best part is, in choosing life, you actually don't have to choose between wisdom and pleasure and accomplishment. In choosing God, God then turns around and gives these things as gifts to us. And instead of being something bitter that leads us into darkness, they become something beautiful that find their fulfillment. And uh, Jake preempted me, Matthew 6, 33. Jesus is going to say this. He's going to say, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. A little bit out of context, but I think it, I think it applies here as well. And so just as I'm, just as I'm thinking, I think, you know, we ask the question, what does this mean for us as OVV? And what does this mean for us as a personal level? I think it means let's be a people that are unchained to these pursuits, right? Let's be a people that recognize the emptiness of pleasure and wisdom and accomplishment for their own sake. Let's be a people unchained by those things. Let's be a people that aren't held back by those things. Let's be a people that aren't just chasing these things into darkness, letting these things lead us into just a place of darkness and change and a place of hating um, everything around us. Let's not, I mean, we've been giving warning. Let's not, let's not go there. Um, but let's be a people, I think, let's be a people characterized, right? What is my heart here? I think my heart here is, let's be a people who seek first the kingdom of God. Um, let's be a people wholly devoted to following God. You know, seeing him transform ourselves, seeing him transform our community, seeing him bring light into darkness. Yeah, 
And I'll just read Matthew 6.33 again, because I think this sums this up well. But, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So let me pray, and then we're going to go into our next song. Um, Jesus, this is a this is a hard book, and it's a dark book. Um, and we recognize that. And we pray, would you take the scripture that's been set before us today, and would you speak to us in it? Um, would you meet us in it? Um, would you tell us what it is um, that you would have us hear? Would you, um, if we find ourselves in a place of darkness this morning, would you cause the curtain to ripple? Would you bring hope um, to those who feel lost in a place of darkness? Would you shine forth? Would there be the same rippling, the same thing that happens here with the author? Would you give them a glimpse of your beauty? Would you give them enough to carry on? Would you give them enough to begin to walk closer with you, to take the next step towards you? Um, and Jesus, thank you that that's all that you really ask of us, is take the next step. Hear my voice and come closer. Hear my voice and take the next step towards me. So we pray that for us. We pray that for us as OVV. We pray that as uh, your church here in Carlton Place, we say, let us break free of these pursuits that are empty, um, these things that have no gain. Um, give us freedom from that. And let us walk forward into your love, into your light, into your reality. Let us take the next step towards you. Um, we love you. You are sovereign. You are good. You are in control. We trust you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Vineyard, visit ovv.ca.